Hello, and welcome to the Text in Us podcast. I'm your host, George Fricks, and I'm here with my co-host, L. Grover Fricks, to resume our discussion in Exodus chapter 12, part 2. That's right. Here we go. Without further ado, Scroll of Shemot, chapter 12, part 2. It was at half of the night Yahweh struck all the chosen of the land of Mitzrayim, from the chosen of the Pero sitting upon his seat, to the chosen of the one who sits in the house of the pit, all the chosen of the livestock. Pero rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all of Mitzrayim. There was a great shriek in Mitzrayim, for there was no house in which there was not dead. He called for Moshe and for Aharon by night. He said, Rise up, depart from the midst of my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Walk, serve Yahweh as you have spoken, also your flocks and your herds. Take as you have spoken and walk. You will bless me also. Mitzrayim strengthened over the people to hurry to send them from the land, for they said, We are all dying. The people lifted their swelling dough before it soured, their kneading bowls bound in their dresses upon their shoulders. The sons of Yisrael did according to the word of Moshe. They asked from Mitzrayim clinking silver and clinking gold and dresses. Yahweh gave patronage of the people in the eyes of Mitzrayim. They asked. They snatched away from Mitzrayim. The sons of Yisrael pulled up their tent pegs from Ramses towards Sukkot, 600,000 feet of heroes besides toddlers. Also, a mixed greatness ascended with them, and flock and herd purchased thing, a great heaviness. They baked the dough that they had brought from Mitzrayim, cakes of matzah, for it was not soured, for they had been driven from Mitzrayim. They were not able to tarry. Also, hunted foods they had not made for themselves. The dwelling of the sons of Yisrael, who dwelled in Mitzrayim, thirty years and four hundred years. It was from the boundary line of thirty years and four hundred years. It was on that same very day. All the armies of Yahweh departed from the land of Mitzrayim. It was a night of guarding for Yahweh, for bringing them from the land of Mitzrayim. This is the night for Yahweh, guarding all the sons of Israel for their eras. Yahweh said to Moshe and Aharon, This is the carved statute of the Pesach, hopping over. Every son of a stranger shall not eat in it. Every servant of a man who is purchased of silver, you will circumcise him, then he will eat it. One who dwells with you and a hired man will not eat it. And the house of one in which it shall be eaten, you shall not bring outside from the house of the flesh. You will not break its bones. All the witnesses of Yisrael will do it. When a resident who resides with you does Pesach for Yahweh, all his males will be circumcised. Then he will come near and do it. He will be like an indigenous person of the land, for an uncircumcised person shall not eat in it. One teaching will be for the indigenous and for the resident who resides in your midst. All the sons of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moshe and Aharon. So they did. It was on the same very day Yahweh brought out sons of Israel from the land of Mitzrayim over their armies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whew. All right, what you got? All right, so jumping into this chapter, picking up in verse 29, we start off with, and it was at half of the night, Yahweh struck all the chosen of the land of Mitzrayim. 
from the chosen of Pharaoh sitting upon his seat to the chosen of the ones who sit, who sits in the house of the pit, all of the chosen of the livestock. So the first thing I want to look at in that opening paragraph is the phrase, and it was at half of the night. Uh, the uh, rabbis do a couple of interesting things with this. One of the things they do with it that I think is fascinating is that they link this back to uh, Avraham going against the armies that had captured Lot Ooh. and uh, tracing it to that phrase where it says that he divided yep. upon them at night okay. uh, to rescue Lot, right? And I think there's a lot of similarities in theme in that, in that, you know, both stories are a rescuing of right. people, right? Vulnerable, sure. Yeah. But the other interesting thing about this section is specifically there's a lot of debate about who exactly dies here Mm. when it talks about the firstborn what does that exactly mean Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of questions about does it also include like the heads of uh, houses or occupations Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. the heads head taskmasters and etc and the reason they kind of talk about that is uh, as they kind of look at is it possible that every household has a firstborn present mm. um, because it says that in all of the houses someone has died so right. how there do you account no house in which there was not some dead right right so how do you account for that is it that or some say that there's just a lot of uh it's a it's a looser marital society Okay. And so a woman could have lots of firstborns of other men. Huh. Now that I think is just them creating something to fit the narrative. I don't think there's any actual cultural evidence, evidence of, that. of that. But you know, they, the, the point being that they're looking at this and trying to wrestle with what exactly does that all mean? of the chosen of the land mean? Right. Okay. Well, I've got a, I've got an answer. May or may not be correct. But uh, in the coming chapter, we're going to have the actual word for firstborn. The word that Mm. is here and throughout most of the Tanakh, though it has historically been translated firstborn, is not the word for firstborn. There's a different word for that. It's the word Bukhur. And we've talked about this before. The word Bukhur is just uh, a regular verb that means to choose. And I would use it like I'm choosing to have that cake for dinner. What a choice that would be. Um, But (laughs) interesting um, Freudian discovery there my consciousness but um and so my suggestion would be that it's not a literal firstborn because that's going to come up when god is talking about consecrating the firstborn it's hmm. it's a who is the chosen one in each household who is carrying on the the legacy of the house and to me that also makes sense yes there's something retributive going on in that the firstborn of Israel were murdered and thrown in the river right and yeah. lied about it but here um it's also a functional execution right because if god is trying to put an end to the regime of oppression, the culture of oppression that Mitzrayim has cultivated, right? Because all those neighbors were complicit in the genocide of mm. the uh, Israeli babies, right? Mm-hmm. Or the um, sons of Jacob's babies, anyway. And so, uh, therefore, he needs to put an end to all those who are being trained in that oppression. And I think the inclusion of the animals there is a picture of how broad and societal um, 
uh, the problem is, right? We'll talk later about getting Egypt out of Israel, right? By all that time in the desert. But also, I think he's trying to get Mitzrayim out of Mitzrayim, right? Get, get the yeah. Egypt out of Egypt by killing off the people who have been trained in um, perpetuating these patterns. So, yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and they comment on the animals as well, uh, postulating that perhaps the death of the firstborn of the animals is because these many different animals are often a part of the uh, pantheon of deities that the Egyptians worship. Mm-hmm. And so by killing those animals, it removes the ability for the Egyptians to say, oh, it was this god that did it instead. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally possible. Um, also, we see animals included in the covenants just in general, and we see right. them included in the um, repentance, like in uh the scroll of Jonah, right? The book of Jonah, there's um, the cows repent. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's a pattern throughout the book. Animals matter. They're treated like individuals. Um, but yep, that's what I think what's happening. Um, so Pero's response, he knows what's up. He calls for Moshe and Aharon by night. And he has a series of imperative verbs here. He gives us a whole bunch of commands. Um, rise up, depart, walk, serve, um, also your flocks and herds, take as you have spoken, walk. That's six imperatives. And then he switches to future tense. And he says, you will bless me also. Yeah. Um, and I think that's super interesting because it's not a command like the other ones. So he's not saying walk go take your stuff bless me it's do all these things and you will bless me which makes me think that he's saying the leaving is the blessing not like by the way you know say some nice stuff when you leave okay right (laughs) as you as the door hits you from behind um but rather the walking out of these commands that he's giving him literally walking out haha puns um, is the blessing that it, that will happen. Hmm. Um, that's my theory about that. I just think it's interesting to notice those verb tenses. Yeah, no, I think there is a weird switch there. And there is also some rabbinic conversation around what exactly he might mean by that. One of the things they note is that uh, way back up at the beginning of this section where it says, from the chosen of the paro sitting upon his seat, yep. they ask the question, does that mean paro, uh, the king himself dies? Because, you know, it's reasonable that he might have been a firstborn. Mm. Um, so does he die? Um, does his firstborn son die? What exactly is going on there? And in that debate... Uh, some of them say, no, the king of, of Egypt does not die here because of an earlier mention where God is talking about, I'm going to do these things so that they will see right. who I am, essentially. Right. Um, and so they, they look at that and they say, well, no, they preserved the, God preserves the king of Egypt so that he is a witness to all of these things mm-hmm. all the way through to the end. Right. And so he is sitting here seeing all of the firstborn die around him, and he comes to... Moshe and Aharon and says, bless me so that I don't die also. uh So when you go and sacrifice to your God, put in a good word for me so that he doesn't kill me as well. Right. Um, And uh, it also made me think, you know, this is, there's a potential, potential parallel between 
this story and another story where we see somebody rising up in the night uh, and asking for a blessing, mm. which is... Pero is Jacob, huh? Jacob, right? Interesting. Um, and uh, that story involves taking all of your things and leaving a land and going somewhere else and being worried about what's going to happen. Um, so there's some potential th- parallels there, but what strikes me about that is that language of bless me, like grasping onto Moshe's, right. you know, leg, Tassels. not letting him go and saying, you're going to bless me too yeah. before you go. It's interesting. Um, I don't know what I would do with that parallel, but it is an interesting parallel. I don't either. But okay. Exciting. Interesting. Chase down the drosh. Yeah. Chase it down. I mean... All right, I won't get too much into it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next thing that happens is it says Mitzrayim strengthened over the people to hurry to send them from the land. I think this is a poetic um, choice that's meant to engender a sense of suspense, right? Like, oh, yeah. no, because Pero's been strengthening himself and God's been strengthening him this whole time. And so we get to this. And it's like, oh man, Pero is finally sending them out. But now Mitzrayim is strengthening. Oh no, they're they're gonna like catch them, even though Pero has told them to go. Um, but then it says to hurry to send them from the land. So instead, we end up with this parallelism of before. You know, they were flexing to oppress them, and now they're um, flexing to send them out. Um, the response, by the way, also in my opinion, backs up the chosen versus firstborn. Yeah. Thing. Because we are all dying. I think they would have noticed if, if it, was it was just firstborn, firstborn sons um, specifically. But nope, um, we all are dying, um, which is, you know, really fear-based as well, that they're not in a mourning spot for those who have perished. Right. Um, I find it so curious, by the way, that we do not have, like, the narrative of that happening. We don't see like an angel of destruction. We don't get to see like, you know, in the movies, a little spirit figure glide through the air and kill people. It just says, Yahweh struck them. The end. Right. Um, right. It doesn't say how it happens. Um, before we we heard a lot about how Passover would happen, right? Or, or yeah. Or rather. I was kind of thinking that about that because of the way that this story has some structural parallels to creation uh, in that we have the spirit of God splitting the night, but it's almost an opposite of creation, right? Because uh, we saw all of this death and destruction happen here in Egypt, Uh, but there's also a dividing that happens in creation, right? So um, uh, when God separates waters and separates the day from night and all of these things being separated, and we hear this section start out with a splitting, a separating of the night. Mm. So, um, well, new creation for God's people, right? Um, creation of the new identity. Yeah, certainly. Um, so what do they do? They lift their swelling dough before it sours. Um, and they bind their kneading bowls and their dresses on their shoulders. Um, that swelling dough, by the way, the word for pregnant is a word, um, that has to do with swelling. Hmm. Um, 
And so I think there's a little bit of a literary thing happening there that, um, you know, their pregnancies were put to an end by Mitzrayim. Hmm. Um, and so now they're leaving with swelling of new life, even if it's not a, a literal pregnancy. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting, specific detail. You know, we're not told about, like, what were the vats that would hold oil? You know, that's not told to us where where those are kept, like all the random stuff that could be detailed for us. And kneading right. clothes bound in their dresses upon their shoulders is very specific. It is. Yeah, I, I, there was a number of things about this that, you know, uh, there were some entries of rabbis saying, this doesn't make any sense. Why would they take their kneading bowls and stick them on their backs? They have a bunch of pack animals they could stick them on. What is going on here? Um, and uh, most of their conclusions were around, it was a reverence for uh, for what is going on here for the, you know, when we see the tradition of Pesach as it develops mm-hmm. for the matzah mm-hmm. and... Um, to be ready to make their To be matzah. ready to go. And the other thing that struck me about this section is it read differently than I expected because it seems like their taking of the swelling dough before it soured was put on by the fact that the Egyptians were pushing them out the door mm. almost as if they were going to wait until it had risen uh-huh. and they could bake it. Right. Um, which is not the way that I've, I've imagined this happening before. I've always imagined that as being a premeditated decision of this is just how we're going to make the bread so that we're ready to leave. Right. Um, well, I think it might be both. Um, you know, there's the other texts that are very clear um, in the previous sections, right, about, like, the Festival of Unleavened Bread and stuff, um, unless that my chronology is messed up because of how I was working on this. Um, but I don't think so. Hmm. Um, so I think it's both, you know. Uh, they had that specific instruction to not allow fermentation to happen, right, which I talked about at the time, that maybe there's an alcohol implication in there, too. Interesting. Like, um, be sober so you're ready to go. Um but I think there's also something beautiful about like God wants this moment to be holy and sacred and there's nothing sour that's allowed to happen in that space. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I like that. Um, there's a, uh, I was reading an entry by Chiz Kuni. I don't know how to say his name. It's okay. He won't know. That's okay. Yeah. And he was saying that this line is the reason why there's the practice of wrapping the matzah oh okay um uh in the tablecloth before you break it right it's a seder meal is what you're referencing there yeah uh, and it comes from this specific passage of taking the knee, uh, the kneading bowls and wrapping them in their okay in their cloaks that word bound there is the same word that mitzrayim is based off of because the word for mitzrayim um is the word for tightly constrained hmm, okay um, which obviously is the hebrew experience right. it's also not what egypt calls themselves um right. it has to, they call themselves like uh, i believe it has to do with blackness it's like the land of black people it's like the name of of egypt in egyptian or demotic is its name but anyway another relatively famous thing from this section that's still worth underlining is that they ask for all of this stuff, right? Mm, mm-hmm. It says they asked from Mitzrayim clinking things. 
uh, of silver and golden dresses. Um, they're not pillaging. They're not plundering. Right. God doesn't give them permission to do that. It is very specifically they ask. And then it says Yahweh gave patronage of the people in the eyes of Mitzrayim. We've talked about Chain um, being grace in lots of previous episodes, and that certainly applies here, right? If you are imagining grace as like a general goodwill and benevolence and giving people room to breathe, um, that kind of works in this section. Um, if you didn't know, the, like uh, the definition of grace is unmerited favor is um, concocted in the 1600s, um, not the 1600s. Yes, well, the Puritans. The Puritans came up with that definition. Um, so here we see it's very much patronage, right? They ask for resources and they're given resources. That's what patronage is, along with so much else. Um, they asked and they snatched away, although it doesn't say whether they're like, you know, snatching themselves away. That would kind of be encoded in the verb tense if that was what it meant. But you know, it's kind of part of what's happening there because that direct object isn't folded into that verse. Um, yeah, I think that's coming back to when God's saying that he's going to snatch them away. I think it's referring back to that uh, that kind of vibe of the Exodus rather than them snatching away stuff. Right. Um, and I like the use of patronage there. You know, that's, we generally see favor, right? Mm-hmm. He gave favor of the people in the eyes of Mitzrayim, which like you just said, has, like, you can imagine that within our context and our understanding of theology. You know, we would just kind of glaze right on by that Mm. use of favor, Mm -hmm. Um, but it changes when we look at that from a patronage perspective, right? right? And it, it makes me think way back with Avraham, when he first leaves Egypt and we right. see that crazy interaction where he gets all of this stuff at the end and you're like, right. what in the world? Why does he get all of that stuff? It doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, and that certainly is pertinent to this story because the traditional teaching is that we're always rewalking out the history of our ancestors. Right? right. So here they're doing it again. I also have argued throughout Exodus that... Um, you know, the themes inherent in here are themes of patronage, that God is hmm. being a good patron and proving himself right. to be that. And going even back into Genesis, we saw a different offer of patronage from that pedo. Um, right. And so we have that at the end here, God gives them a little chance to redeem themselves as being good patrons, even if um, pedo doesn't entirely... Um, but they pull up their tent pegs, which also is very much a callback to Abraham. Yeah, doing that some, all the time. some patriarch language. Yeah, Nasa is the word there. Um, and it says 600,000 feet of heroes besides toddlers, which I think is really fun. Um, just phrasing in general. But right. that 600,000 number is usually used um, to talk about like per individual. So it's possible that... You know, every person has two feet, so it's possible there is 300,000 people leaving. Um, right. That's not, like, at all the most interesting question to me around the exodus. Um, it's just a side note for people who are up at night thinking about 300,000 people um, or 600,000 or however many. It's one way to, you know, deal with that. But I love that God calls them heroes. You know, he's not like weak, pathetic 
children who I had to save from their indolence, right? Right. right. <laughs> it's not like, haha, now you're forever indebted to me because you were so pathetic that um, now you have to worship me, haha. Um, he calls them heroes um, in choosing to leave their slavery, and that should be, um, you know, encouraging for us doing the same thing on a spiritual level. Yeah, I, yeah, that's interesting. There's a um, this phrase here that comes after that. The also a mixed greatness ascended with them, uh-huh. which is uh, unusual. in In the KJV, it just says a mixed multitude. Sure, but multitude doesn't quite have the same feeling as greatness, right? Greatness right. is typically talking about the stature of the people. Right. I think it could still be talking about the same thing, even if, you know, it's a more literally greatness, because we saw that way back in the promises to Abraham, like, I will make you great. And that seemed hmm. to be both like greatness of number as well as general greatness. And so I think that, um, that it probably is talking about multitude. I mean, it could be talking about something different and like angelic or whatever, which we'll get to in a second. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, interesting. I think it's calling back to the, to the promise to Abraham. And okay. If you don't keep that word, then you lose that right. connection. Right. Yeah. I know. I, I could see that. Um, it then says with them and flock and herd purchased thing, a great heaviness. Right. And, that again is different than what I might see in the KJV, which says, and flocks and herds and even very much cattle. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's just like deciding what the purchase thing probably is, uh, which I mean, sure. Right. But it's cutting out that a great heaviness piece. Oh, really? Oh. Which is huh. something that occurs quite a bit previously in the text, right? We see things being referred to as having the characteristic of, of heaviness, yeah. right? I'm curious about um, which manuscript then is used in the, like, that's a big enough alteration, and KJV is usually a pretty faithful rendition, even if, you know, um, it's a little bit archaic. Uh, and so that makes me wonder if um, I'm using the empty, the Masoretic text, but it's possible that they're using a different one that doesn't have that word in it because it's just um, hmm. the word for glory, right? Right. Is what I would have expected from KJV. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's not in the NIV and it's not in the ESV either. So they all kind of skirt around that phrasing. Okay, I just went and double-checked if it's that many translations, but now I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) They just didn't know what to do with it. Well, no, they did know what they're doing. They're just obfuscating, um, like, a great glory. They they shuffle back into large herds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is probably Strong's fault. You know, if you want to blame somebody, it's probably... Probably put that on Strong. That's fine. I I blame Strong's for a lot of things, so... sure. Uh, fascinating. All right. Um, then we have a sudden sidebar for food for provisions, right? which is a kind of entertaining, you know, if you picture like the big epic moment, da, 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 da. And then it's like, then they made pancakes. Right. Right. And <laughs> right. They made pancakes. And at the end it's like, oh yeah. And also some hunted foods. Right. Um, no, they didn't have hunted foods. It says they had not made for themselves hunted foods. Um, that, by the way, if you're trying to climb aboard the Jacob train, it's going back to Yaakov and Esav. Mm. Esav is oh, yeah. Foods. Right. 
So, you know, which of course takes us back to Nimrod, our original hunter. So Mansa is really made out of lentils. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, but the original hunter, of, of course, is Nimrod, who is a big, um, you know, uh, archetype for empire. So we have... Right. They're leaving behind all of empire with them and only taking this unsoured food um, which, again, I think is a, a spiritual point. Um, and then we have a little thing that I presume is chiastic. Who wants to count all the way back to the beginning of Exodus? Oh, um, I know. To find Not the me. chiasm in the middle. Not me either. Somebody um, email us. We got a bunch of really great sheep, by the way. We got great battle sheep from last Oh, week. yes. Thank you for everyone who contributed to our... Our... Battle sheep compendium. Yes. Uh, we'll have to get some of those online somewhere um, so that everybody can enjoy them. But anyway, so they were in Mitzrayim 30 years and 400 years, and we have that um, repeated. That goes back to the very beginning of Exodus. So presumably somewhere in Exodus 6, which I believe is part of the calling of Moshe, which is an important dope section. So that seems critical um and then we have this statement it was on that same very day all the armies of yahweh departed from the land of mitzrayim um you spent more time studying the midrash as, as always uh in this podcast series but um i am familiar that they that at least midrashic tradition is imagining the people themselves to be the army, right? Because that goes back to the slightly misogynistic thing about the seductive women in the fields with the mirrors, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm curious if that's not the case, right? We did have them called heroes earlier, so it's not totally foreign idea that God would here refer to them as armies. Um, but in combination with the night of guarding for Yahweh thing, what if it's like a different kind of army, right? Because the first time we saw the God of armies um, and reference to God's armies is right. back in the creation narrative, um, talking about the stars and um, seemingly supernatural slash angelic um, thing. And certainly we're about to have more, spoiler alert, more appearances of angels at the crossing of the Red Sea story. There's a big angelic presence there that we tend to forget about slash right. leave out of our storybook Bible. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if that's what was going on there, um, you know, especially with the night of guarding thing for bringing them from the land of Mitzrayim. That bringing them, there's a different word for bring, um, uh, which would be vo in he feel if you're a student of mine. And it's not that word. It's a departing. It's a he caused them to depart. We don't have a great word in English for causing someone to depart, you know, other than kicking them out. Um, but delivering is also a word that works there. Um, it brings some birth overtones that aren't quite there in the original Hebrew. Hmm. Um, but that would be an alternate uh, translation that you could use there. Okay. Um, delivering them from the land of Mitzrayim. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, yeah, there's definitely the, the Midrash tends to associate the hosts being the people of Israel. Sure. Talking about how they increased in the land and, you know, referring back to earlier uh, in this story, um, we have that similar phrase of them being referred to as an army. I think we commented on that of like, it's an interesting thing to call an army because it's a bunch of people with goats. Right. 
Right. It and is, small children. It is much more Jesus-y to not call yourself an army, right? Um, we like to, uh, the kingdom of God tends to be upside down, right? Um, and so there is something to that. Um, but also there is often some rabbinic posturing, you know, being like, well, we were mighty too. Um, so I don't know which one it is. Right. I'm, I'm not bothered either way. We do have a funny interpolation next. We have rules about who is allowed to right. participate in Pesach, which if you are a documentary hypothesis person, this is your moment um, to sit proudly upon your haunches and say, ha ha, um, an interpolation, because it certainly feels that way. I, of course, am going to instead posit that there's something chiastic happening here. Um, I don't know what it is. <laughs> And I'm not willing to do the work, <laughs> but I am willing to say that I don't think it's the documentary hypothesis. Um, I think I think that needs to be a poll on the episode. Should Elle do the work? Should Elle do the work if she's going to throw rocks? Um, I already know the answer. Is yes. <laughs> but you know what? I have other jobs. Um but I just think everything that is in this book is really intentional. Um, and it ends up being pretty magical if you can sit down and figure out what the intention was. Right. And so I am not prone to say, well, somebody just slapped it in here because right. it's in a random scrap. Well, and I do think that that is the, one of the shortcomings of Doc Hypo is you do cut out that, like you said, the intentionality of the language, right? Right. And you lose the ability to say, "Oh, that looks weird." Are they are they trying to do something in the text? Right. Um, right. So, which is why we threw it in the garbage. All in favor, say aye. Aye. It's me. Okay. Um, we can't have a paid man. A hired man can't can't eat of it. I just want to highlight that portion of this list of rules um, for Pesach because. There's a conversation around how the slavery in the Bible does not totally line up with like uh, American historical um, Atlantic slave trade, which is true. However, sometimes we get a little bit chummy with our renditions because we're right. trying to imagine our protagonists in the best possible light um, and thereby try to ensure a moral purity, right? And so we'll be like, well, the slaves, they, you know, it was different, which is true. Um, the conditions were better, which is true. Um, but here we still have the contrast between there is a word for a servant who gets paid. <laughs> it is different than the word for service um, and slave. So, Right. And we see this back to back because it talks about a servant of a man who is purchased. Right. And a they do person. have to be circumcised and they are going to eat it. Right. Um, well, if he wants to, um, I think there's there's a piece in there uh, about that. But, but oh, no, 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 you're right. If you've bought somebody, they're part of your household. They're right. circumcised. They participate. And there um, I do think you see a little bit of what you were talking about in that there is a... Uh, God does put some guidelines on that still of if you do this, they are a part of your household right. and... They are a part of the traditions and right. everything else that goes with being who you are as a people. Right. But if they're just dwelling with you for the moment, that word is pretty temporary. Right. Um, if they're just residing with you, the son of a stranger, then they don't. Which, again, plays back to our a little um, theological thing we mentioned last week about... 
um, you know, grafted in, therefore participating in biblical holidays, and yet not necessarily dwelling in the household of a Jewish person. So, um, okay, things about not breaking the bones, uh, just kind of thrown in there, um, in the middle of talking about who's allowed and who's not allowed, circumcised people being allowed, uncircumcised people not being allowed, um, I think that there's probably something Jesus-y in Oh, there. yeah, for sure. Um, being that Jesus is not, um, his bones aren't broken when he's crucified, so Passover lamb walked out there. Um, it's always nice whenever we can draw that line, but all the sons of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moshe and Aharon, so they did. It was on the very same day Yahweh brought out there, so that delivered again the sons of Israel from the land of Mitzrayim over their armies. So whose armies are we talking about here? Uh, we've got Mitzrayim armies, potential angelic armies, um, the people of Israel's armies. I'm not sure because it's the word over rather than with. right. So who knows? Not me. But here we have the Exodus kicking off. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you for that translation work. It's always exciting to read through, and I love the things that we get to pull out of all of those details. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess we'll have to write our own midrash about exactly how the angel of death or destruction or whatever happened there um, really walked out um, in that story. I mean, we can just watch Prince of Egypt. and <laughs> It's canon. Yeah. Right? Um, at least the music is. All right, well, we have um, coming up some pretty interesting things as they come on out of the land, so I'm excited for Chapter 13. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please mostly questions. <laughs> <laughs> any of that you want to send our way, that can go to textinus at gmail.com. Um, yep. And we'll do a mailbox episode um, in a little bit. Yeah. So this has been the Text and Us podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that you will join us again next week for Exodus chapter 13.